Welcome to Question Your Garden, an introspective podcast intended for self-exploration and personal development. I'm your host, Alicia, and I'm the crazy human who thought chatting about my own mental health journey might be helpful for you. I do hope you'll stick around. Now, it needs to be said, this podcast is not a substitute for mental health treatment or diagnoses. You should always consult with your doctor or therapist before making any changes to your treatment. Remember, I'm just a person on the internet talking about my own personal experiences and am in no way qualified to make life-changing decisions for you. Like fear of intimacy... I didn't see that emotional neglect was also a factor in my life. My brain translated those words into something that I thought would be glaringly obvious if it were a factor. And it is, but if you don't know the ways in which emotional neglect develops and how it presents itself in yourself, you'll just look at it like another personality quirk. I mean, that's what I did. I just thought that I was naturally reclusive. I've thought that sacrificing yourself to others and their needs were what good people did. It's never made sense to me how other other people can have some knockdown, drag out, yelling matches and still want to be around one another. I've also never really understood how people recover after an argument. Like what are you supposed to do exactly to come back from being wounded by someone you love? How is that even supposed to get fixed? I just figured it was exclusively the sexual abuse that made me hesitant to phys- be physically close to people, even if I liked them. It makes sense to me that if people actually wanted to help me with something, they'd just do it. They'd somehow just know what I needed, right? And if they didn't help, then I'd know that they didn't care and I could move on and not spend time on someone who wasn't interested. I just figured that doing things alone and for myself was how it was supposed to be. Be self-sufficient. You don't need anyone else, do you? Having a shitty day? No need to reach out to anyone for support. You've got this. Really want to dump all the things floating around in your brain? That's what pen and paper's for. No reason to reach out to someone else and impose on them. You're a good friend, remember? No one needs to worry about you. You can take care of yourself. Here's the thing. Humans are meant to be social creatures that do better in groups. We were built to make it through this life with the support from those closest to us. I've rejected that idea for a while. I didn't have any knowledge behind my opinion to change that opinion. Just my life experiences, which, to this point, have only demonstrated that people aren't to be trusted and there's no use getting close to anyone. But, hell, where do I begin? Okay, the main reason why it's important to have a secure and supportive social group to reach out to, 
Recovery from Stress and Trauma When you think about other species of animals who may not be as advanced as we are, you have to wonder just a bit, how can they manage out in the wild when damn near everything is trying to kill them? Research has shown that um, animals actually follow through with their stress response cycles and inclusion in their group helps them recover more quickly. Basically, recovery involves shaking and trembling, many times resembling attempts at running in place, which that's what helps dispense the pent-up energy that grew while the threat mounted against them. Their body goes through the complete physical response of the stress, and then they rejoin the safety of the herd. And I kind of always tend to think about deer in my head. Um, But they rejoin the herd and then they go about their business until the next threat. They don't tend to wander around in the wild completely freaked out by everything because their bodies have finished that stress response cycle, allowing them to go on about their life, at least until the next threat. Meanwhile, we as these advanced humans are walking around with stress from past trauma that we haven't been able to release. And since that energy is still just hanging around in there inside our bodies, we make decisions about our lives and how we interact in the world based on this lingering stress. Do you know where we learned how to handle stress and how to recover? Infancy. Not necessarily our whole childhood, but infancy specifically. That period of time where we don't have language available to us. Where the most we can do is cry and laugh or stare out blankly, shake and vomit. It's during our infancy that we learn who our caretakers are and work hard to build an attachment with them to help us feel secure and safe. If our caretakers are emotionally unavailable for us, we can develop attachment disorders. If our caretakers are emotionally inconsistent for us, we can develop attachment disorders. I'm hesitant to get too involved in talking about attachment, but I have to, to a point. Hopefully, I won't muck it up too much either. Remember, I'm no expert. I'm just sharing things I'm learning along the way. I may not have a a wholly thorough understanding, so I'll try to keep it basic. might wind up being too basic, so I apologize. When you're an infant, you really only have your emotional language to communicate with. Smiles, laughs, cries, and screams stuff like that. If your parent isn't emotionally savvy, it's quite likely they'll misread or even be too uncomfortable with the negative emotions to properly deal with them. So if baby you cried over something you were scared of and your parent rejected your cries with a blank stare or withholding touch or or with anger, etc., there's a good chance that you learned that they weren't going to protect you. 
I mean, one-off incidents probably won't matter over the long term, but if the parent is consistently not there for the child, the child doesn't learn how to attach to others properly, to recover from things that stress them out or upset them. As we children get older and more mobile, we continue to expand on our ability to attach to our caretaker. We're still reading facial cues, responding to touch, or lack thereof, and trying to figure out what works best to keep us safe. I want to go ahead and add that most parents don't even know all this is happening. They're doing the best they can with what they have, and if they haven't been given the resources to overcome things from their past that make them who they are, they'll unknowingly continue to perpetuate the problems and dysfunctions. I feel it in my very being that my mom cared for each of her kids and loved them immensely. She just didn't have the emotional resources to do better for any of us. From what I understand about attachment styles, there are basically three types. Secure, anxious, and avoidant. Secure attachment happens when you have parents, or at least a single parent, that is emotionally mature enough to meet your needs as an infant and allow you the physical and emotional safety necessary to know when you can run back to home base for soothing and when you can wander off in search of childhood independence. These parents are consistent in showing their children that they will protect the child and be attentive to their emotional needs. Anxious attachment happens when the parents are inconsistently supportive, which teaches the child that they can't really be sure what response they're going to get from the parent. Here, one of my favorite websites explains this a little better, so let me read an excerpt. I'll link to the article in the show notes. Many parents and or caregivers are inconsistently attuned to their children. Attachment researchers describe the behavior of these adults, noting how at times they are nurturing, attuned, and respond effectively to their child's distress, while at other times they are intrusive, insensitive, or emotionally unavailable. When parents vacillate between these two very different responses, their children become confused and insecure, not knowing what kind of treatment to expect. These children often feel distrustful or suspicious of the parent, but they act clingy and desperate. They learn that the best way to get their needs met is to cling to their attachment figure. These children have an ambivalent, anxious attachment with their unpredictable parent. Avoidant attachment happens when the parents are inconsistent with support as well. However, the parents in this case may be more stoic or rejecting. They could be unresponsive to their child's needs or otherwise unavailable. Here, let's do another excerpt from PsychAlive, my uh, website I like to read a lot. Parents of children with an avoidant attachment tend to be emotionally unavailable or unresponsive to them a good deal of the time. They disregard or ignore their children's needs and can be especially rejecting when their child is hurt or sick. These parents also discourage crying and encourage premature independence in their children. 
In response, the avoidant attached child learns early in life to suppress the natural desire to seek out a parent for comfort when frightened, distressed, or in pain. By not crying or outwardly expressing their feelings, they are often able to partially gratify at least one of their attachment needs, that of remaining physically close to a parent. Ugh. In addition to those articles, there are a few episodes from uh, the podcast Therapist Uncensored that I'll link up as well. There's so much more to attachment styles and how they're formed than what little I've mentioned here. Now, all that being said, I very clearly self-identify with the avoidant attachment style. I had to grow up young to manage the abuse, of course, but I guess there were other things that I didn't notice either. I don't view my mom as a negative character in my younger years, but maybe things that happened were so long ago that I don't remember them anymore. I do remember enjoy sp- enjoying spending time with her, but I don't really remember seeking her out for comfort either. My mom never told me that I wasn't good enough, but... That inherent belief permeates everything in my life, and I remember it being a silent theme as a child, too. There's another book I've read recently called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay Gibson. In this book, she covers what she views as the four types of difficult parents. The emotional parent instills feelings of instability and anxiety. The driven parent stays busy trying to perfect everything and everyone. The passive parent avoids dealing with anything upsetting. The rejecting parent is withdrawn, dismissive, and derogatory. Of those four, my mom was hands down the passive parent. And since most of my childhood, she was married to the stepbastard, someone who was loud, controlling, manipulative, and at times emotionally volatile, he exacerbated her passivity. I do think I've taken on her don't-poke-the-bear approach and respond similarly to how she did when it comes to other people's anger. I don't remember seeing arguments when I was a kid. I remember the stepbastard getting his panties in a wad about one thing or another and us just letting him ride the wave of superiority until the threat went away on its own. Looking back with adult eyes, they didn't have a healthy relationship either. At least I don't think they did. It doesn't feel like they did. I certainly didn't learn anything about having healthy relationships with people growing up, that's for sure. I spent more time trying to be the good kid, trying to silently please my parents, trying to be helpful where I could with others, staying quiet and out of the way so as not to get anyone angry at me. I feel like the most physical affection I received was when I was sick, but then there were still times I was fussed at for claiming I was sick and being accused of faking it. Not by my mom, of course, but 
damn, I didn't even have the right to say I didn't feel well at the risk of being accused of lying. I remember one time that I was sick too. I think the step bastard was off to work and my mom was sleeping because she was working nights. I remember crawling along the floor to get to the bathroom in agony, wishing my mom would wake up and find me to console me, but it not happening. I suffered through my pain alone and never mentioned it to anyone. I mean, what good would that have done after the fact? I think it was around 10 or 11 years old for that one. I knew how to dose my own medicine. I knew the standard procedure for dealing with being sick. So, I parented myself in most cases. I knew how to do things and they let me. It's like... Like they handed over control of my garden before I had any idea what to do to keep the plants alive or thriving. Oh, she's smart. She'll figure it out. But I had no real concept of the world, of care of the garden. I don't know what plants need extra care. I don't know what plants need more sunshine. I don't know what plants need more water. I don't even know what some of these plants are. Are they even supposed to be here, or are they weeds? And what happens when these plants get big? Are they supposed to get that big and in your face, or do they need to be trimmed back occasionally? The securely attached person knows how to tend the garden. When to trim, when to replant, when to water. The anxious attached person may spend a good bit of time flitting about the garden, trimming and replanting and watering, almost to the point of obsession because they don't want anything to die, but they don't really know what to do with all of it either. And the avoidant attached person? They just let the garden do its thing, occasionally taking interest in cleaning up the look of things to better enjoy the garden for a bit. Then... Retreating back to take a hands-off approach since they too really don't know what the hell to do with all of it to help the garden thrive. Oy. Since it's still a fairly new concept to me and I've droned on about this for a while, I want to come back to this in another episode to maybe talk about ways to get closer to a more secure attachment style. In the meantime... I highly encourage you to do some additional reading on the topic because I really feel like it's a major player in why we do the things we do. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I've heard some wonderful feedback from several of you faith faithful listeners, and I can't be begin to tell you how much it means to me. I love it when you guys share the show with others, too. It was a little scary the first few times, but... It tells me that it means something to you, and damn it, that's a high compliment. I really do want to connect with you guys more, so please feel free to shoot me an email at questionyourgarden at gmail.com. And in case you don't know, I'm also on Facebook at um, Question Your Garden. That's the social media handle. If there's something you want to uh, chat about or even have some comments you'd like me to bring into an episode, or not, I don't have to. Send it to me. I'd love to hear it. And, as always, 
A special thanks goes to both Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and Scott Buckley at scottbuckley.com.au for the music transitions they provided for use in the show. Until next time, keep weeding. <laughs>